All right, good morning everyone and welcome to our first session of studying Christology by David Scare. Again, this comes from the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic series. This is volume six with Robert Preuss as editor, Christology by David P. Scare. And I will simply leave it up to your discretion whether or not you uh, choose to read the introductory material. There is, of course, a uh, a foreword, a general introduction, really that refers to the whole series, the whole dogmatic series. And then, of course, there's a preface written by uh, Dr. Scare, um, beginning on Roman numeral 13. Dr. Scare, of course, is a professor at uh, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. So he is a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod professor. Um, not only does our vicar, um, I think our vicar has had classes with him, I've had classes with him as I was going through seminary, and even my father, who's a Lutheran pastor, had classes with him. So Dr. Scare has been there a while. He's a fixture, um, but a, a very interesting man, and, a, and we are very grateful for his theology uh, and his theological leadership even up to the present. So. Without further ado, let's open in the text to page one. And we are going to take this chapter, uh, at least the first part of it, particularly slowly, just to make sure that we're all on the same page. And I am aware, too, that some of the viewers who have picked us up online and who are now studying with us aren't necessarily Lutheran or don't have a whole lot of familiarity with Lutheranism. And so I want to take our time and make sure we have the foundation laid here in this early chapter as we move forward. Those of you who did poke ahead and read into this chapter, that's well and good. We won't get any further than the first today. You probably noticed that it's a little bit of a historical overview. And the point here being that Christology, as with all theology, is not done in a vacuum. So we have to know where we've been and where we are in order to understand you know, what, the, what the contemporary difficulties and questions in Christology are. Now, of course, uh, Christology, that in one sense just simply means the study of Christ in the same kind of way that biology is the study of bios, the study of life, earthly life. Uh, so Christology, in one sense, is the, the study of Christ, but the way it's used is frequently different. Christology really is used in a way that simply means the person and work of Christ. So if you were to say something like, as, as Dr. Scare will, that, that uh, Christology is a foundation, you're not so much saying the study of Christ is the foundation. You're saying the person and work of Christ are the foundation. So that helps us understand the way in which Christology is used, shorthand of that theology which is specific to the person and work of Christ. You can see that Dr. Scares titled this first chapter, Christology in the Post-Enlightenment Era. So what you see historically is a radical change in how Christology is done, how the person and work of Christ is understood amongst theologians after the Enlightenment. So what Dr. Scare does is, is takes us just from the basics, the basic church history of Christology, 
into the post-Enlightenment era, giving us then a sense for, for where we're at and what the major issues are um, when we look at Christology as a subject. Let's begin on page one. Those of you who are on Zoom, if you do have a question or a comment and you want me to stop, wave a hand frantically into your camera, and if you can get my attention, I'll be glad to pause and, and let you engage. Page one, there we read the doctrine of justification by grace through faith, excuse me, if the doctrine of justification by grace through faith is the center of Christian theology, then Christology is the foundation upon uh, which rest justification and all the other articles of the faith. Okay, so first of all, if the doctrine of justification, by doctrine, very simply, we just mean teaching, and that, that teaching doctrine comes from Christ who is the teacher in the church, so what Christ teaches and reveals about himself, that becomes the teaching in the church, the doctrine. That's where that language comes from. And so when we say the doctrine, we're simply saying the teaching of justification. Now, what do we mean by that, that doctrine of justification, that teaching of justification? Lutherans use this word most frequently in a very specific sense, that is, justification has to do with our standing before God. Justification has to do with the question of our eternal salvation, like the kind of thing that where the rubber hits the road is when you die, when you go to face God at the judgment seat, when you must give an account. Um, how does that go? That's the topic of justification is justification on the basis of works. Will God, for example, take a look at all the things you've done, uh, both good and bad in your life, weigh them out on a scale, and then declare you either to be justified, righteous in his sight, or not justified, unrighteous in his sight? That would be a theory of justification, how one stands before God. And that theory would be, does one stand before God on the basis of his own works? No. No, that is the teaching of the Scripture really from, I'm going to exaggerate, from the first page to the last, that man's justification, his standing before God, is not by his works, but by grace through faith. And we want to understand those terms biblically, which we'll do, but that justification is not on the basis of a person's works. God doesn't treat us as we deserve. At least that's the Christian teaching of justification. And that teaching is that God doesn't treat us as we deserve, but rather by grace. He graciously forgives our sins. Grace in our, in our culture, in our context, is like when we say grace, we often mean like what a ballerina has or maybe what uh, you might experience in, in particularly lovely, delicate music or something like that. Um, that's not what we mean in the Christian sense. By the Christian sense of grace, we essentially mean the opposite of works, the opposite of earning. 
so, so God graciously overlooks all our bad works, all our sins, and declares us to be righteous, thus justifying us in his sight. That's the idea of grace. Now, again, we're going to go back and we're going to look at all of these topic, uh, all, the, all of these specific words in light of what the scriptures themselves teach. I'm just doing an overview right now to, to kind of introduce you to the way we Lutherans speak of these things. Now, that gracious attitude that God has toward us where he looks at a human being and says, I'm not going to judge you as you deserve. I'm going to be gracious to you. I'm going to forgive you. Um, that ha- is to be received by faith. Thus, it is justification to be righteous before God by grace, on the basis of his grace, and how one receives that grace is through faith. That is simply believing, just simply believing in what the Lord says, simply believing in his declaration of grace. Okay, now those of you who have been following very closely and very astutely the words and descriptions I've been giving, have found something missing. In all of this talk about justification, justification by grace, through faith, I have omitted one all-important word, Christ. And that is a particular problem within Protestantism in general and Lutheranism in particular is over the course of the 20th and perhaps even into the 21st century, we have articulated this concept of justification, standing before God by grace through faith in such a way that we've left out the most important piece of all, Jesus. There's a reason why we call it Christianity, Christianity, and not justificationanity or something like that. Gracianity. Faithianity, absolutionianity, whatever you want to add there, it's not the central thing. It's Christianity. Christ is the central thing. Christ is the central feature um, of justification by grace through faith. And that's what, that's what Dr. Scare is getting at here when he writes, if the doctrine of justification by grace through faith is the center of Christian theology, then Christology is the foundation upon which it rests, upon which rest justification, and then all the other articles of the faith. What do we mean by all the other articles of the faith? Well, really all the other teachings that we find in the scriptures. So by articles of the faith, you know, don't expect to find precisely seven of them, or 12 of them, or even 24 of them. By articles of the faith, we simply mean everything that the scriptures say and teach. And sometimes we can identify articles, even if it's a little bit artificial. But what does the scripture say about man in his fallen condition, for example? That would be an article of the faith. What does, what does scripture teach about free will or the lack thereof in spiritual things? That would be an article of the faith. So. If justification by grace through faith is at the center, then the foundation of that teaching is Christ, Christology, who Jesus is, the person and work of Jesus. And then that justification rests upon him, who he is and what he does, as do all the other articles of the faith. Another way to put this is that justification and all the other articles of the faith 
are dependent upon Christology, are dependent upon one's understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do, the person and work of Jesus. So in other words, Christology really is the most important feature of Christian theology. As we'll see in spades, really, I mean, this is one of the working theses of the book, probably, is where the Christology is wrong, the theology is wrong. Uh, it is essential to understand the person and work of Jesus in order to understand properly anything else that is taught in the scriptures. Another way to put this is that Christ is the center of the scriptures. Christ is the center of theology. Uh, Dr. Scare at the time made a very uh, controversial statement in the LCMS when he said, all theology is Christology. And it was controversial because people maybe saw it as reductionistic or, um, or, or, or sidestepping justification or something like this. But of course, one can see even in his, in his words here in the opening sentence, that's not his aim. His aim is simply to show that you don't really have Christian theology without Christ. You don't really have Christianity without Christ. And Christ is not only the foundation, he permeates justification on all the other articles of the faith. Justification just happens to be the central article, so to speak. Okay, Let's, uh, let's delve into the biblical foundations of, of, these, of this justification by grace through faith. And we could turn to many places in the scriptures, but if we turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we find uh, this or very similar language to this. And again, there are many places in the scriptures that you could turn to for this kind of statement. In fact, this kind of language itself, justification by grace through faith, I don't mean the concepts, I mean the language itself, uh, is quite Pauline. If you just look through the New Testament, you don't see Jesus using a, a lot of words like justification, grace, faith. Does he teach these things? Yes, absolutely. But does he use the language of justification by grace through faith? That language, that choice of verbiage, tends to be more Pauline. So we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 2, and let's, let's take a look at this, and let's just cherry-pick, since we want to get on with our Christology text, and let's just look at chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So you can see there in the language of saved, that's equivalent to the language of being justified. And we are justified, we are saved, how? By grace, through faith. And Paul goes on, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Really in that line, Paul's simply articulating what the definition of grace is. You have been saved, you have been justified, and this not, on, not by your own doing, but it is the gift of God. Okay, Paul continues to simply hammer this point. Not a result of works. So the fact that you are saved, the fact that you are declared righteous by God, the fact that you are justified by God, that is not a result of your works. 
And Paul continues, so that no one may boast. If it was by your works, you could boast. And you could say, I'm in heaven because I deserve to be. And so and so is in hell because he deserves to be. You see, so those who are in heaven are there because they deserve it, and those who are in hell are there because they deserve it. That is, frankly, the teaching of many, many religions. It's the teaching that is just sort of inherently written into us as human beings that, hey, everything's fair and everything's just, and um, if you're saved, that's because of you and you earned it. If you're damned, that's because of you and you earned it. Christianity stands out distinct from all this entire way of thinking by saying that we are saved by grace through faith, that we are saved and this salvation is not of our doing, but rather it is the gift of God. It's not a result of our works. God doesn't look at our works and justify us. Um, otherwise, we'd have reason to boast. Paul says, so that no one may boast. And then verse 10 rounds out the thought, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, thought experiment. What happens if you have chapter 2, verse 8, quoted to you over and over and over again without, uh, without verse 10 attached? You might even broaden it and say, what happens if you have verses, uh, you know, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 quoted at you without 10? What do you have in 8 and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Again, what's missing? Jesus. Now, of course, Paul supplies Jesus in the next line. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And, of course, not only does Paul mention Jesus in verse 10, but prior to verses 8 and 9, this entire section is about Jesus. You can see, for example, picking up at chapter 2, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. See the connection? Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raises us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, look at Paul's theology. Jesus, 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 Jesus. But what happens is if we just simply take Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and pull them out of context, look who's missing. Jesus. And so we end up with this justification by grace through faith that really doesn't find a role for Jesus. In fact, you can see that in, in many manifestations of radical Lutheranism today, where there's all kinds of emphasis on justification, all kinds of emphasis put on grace, some emphasis even put on faith. But the more you listen, the less you hear about Jesus. The less you hear about Jesus as the one doing the saving, and the more you hear about the preacher being the one doing the saving. The less you hear about the person and work of Jesus, for example, his crucifixion on the cross to make atonement for our sins, and what replaces that is the preacher's absolution. So instead of seeing justification by grace through faith as permeated by the person and work of Jesus, by Jesus and his cross, it becomes this 
other framework where justification, grace, and faith are understood on their own terms, and Jesus is at best a kind of asterisk, a kind of cog within that system. Maybe he's an example of one who comes and forgives. Maybe he's the preacher par excellence or the uh, grantor of absolution. But no longer is it necessary in the least that he be the divine Son of God crucified for us in order to take away the sins of the world. So that's the distortion that can take place. And of course, it can take place and does within broader Protestantism, but certainly within Lutheranism as well. All right, so now from a biblical standpoint, we've looked at this overarching idea here, the doctrine of justification by grace through faith, well and good, and we've seen how Christ permeates all of it, or as scarce as is the foundation of this. Let's zoom in on the, the concept of uh, grace, and by extension, we'll hit justification and faith here also. Um, but, but let's zoom in on grace first. So flipping backwards in our Bibles from Ephesians 2, flipping backwards to uh, Romans 11, we're just going to grab something out of context here, and, and that's going to be okay. It'll, it's just fine. You can go read the whole context yourself and see that what we're doing isn't a anything manipulative or sneaky, but here we have a really tight biblical definition for what grace is. That's the point. And you can pick that up right at uh, chapter 11 of Romans, verse 5, where Paul writes, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So, that's Christians chosen by grace. Verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So then, from this verse, you can see that the Christian concept of grace excludes all works. So it's not like it's not like you could think of think of your justification before God. Think of your salvation before God. You you die and, and this is just thought experiment. You die and there you are standing before the throne of God, and he he looks and he says, he says, okay, well you've gotten ten thousand sins here, and and only nine thousand good works. So I'm I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to damn you, but by grace. I'm going to count those 9,000 works double. Now you've got 18,000 good works and only 10,000 sins. Hey, the scales tip in your favor. You're saved by grace. Is that a biblical way of understanding grace? No, because the biblical understanding of grace excludes all works. As Paul says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. So a very critical teaching from St. Paul that if we don't grasp this, 
then we're going to mix works into justification. And we're going to see God as somehow like graciously saving us by being gracious toward our works and, you know, working them in us and counting them for us and cleansing them of their sin and making them meritorious in his sight and this kind of thing. But salvation is honestly, even then, not by grace but by merit. It's just sort of a a mixture of grace and works. And that, for example, is what you find in spades in both the Roman Catholic Church and even in the Eastern Orthodox churches. So this is, this is a point of contention and, and, a, and a blessing that we have as Lutherans that in our battles with the papacy, in our return to the, to the text of Scripture, um, we have found this firm and sound teaching right from the pen of St. Paul that grace is, if it is by grace, if justification is by grace, then it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So definitionally, Christian grace is apart from works. Now, if it's apart from works, that then helps us understand what Christians mean when they say faith. Hey, faith is not understood as a work. If it's a work, then, hey, you've got reason to boast because, after all, you chose Jesus. You had faith. Roger down the street, he didn't choose Jesus. He didn't have faith. Again, you're in heaven because you earned it. He's in hell because he earned it. So faith can't even be counted as a work. Rather, faith is the opposite of works. Faith is the shorthand for not by works. I have received this gracious proclamation of the forgiveness of sins on account of Christ Jesus And I can't do anything but simply receive it. And even that receiving isn't a work. It is simply trust. It is simply faith. Here here faith can be defined as passive. We're not talking about faith active where it's bearing fruit. And that's, I mean, that's that's an aspect, a part of what faith is. But a part, an aspect of what faith is also, and here in justification, is simply receiving the forgiveness of sins won by Christ Jesus and proclaimed to us by God. All right, so again, Christian understanding of grace necessarily excludes works right here from the pen of St. Paul. Now, let's track back a little further, so from Romans 11, flip back in your Bible, and let's land at Romans 3, and we'll see all these pieces working together. And again, we'll have, we'll have a nice, sound, biblical foundation from from which we're beginning here. So, Romans chapter 3, and if you look at 21, that'll be sufficient for our purposes here. There you read, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now, the key word to zoom in on is that word, and I'm reading from the ESV here, righteousness. In Greek, it's dikaiosune, and it's the same word from which we derive our word justification. So when you see, especially in Paul, but even more broadly, this idea of righteousness, dikaiosune, it very frequently means justification. Now, it is true enough that in the scriptures, this word righteousness, dikaiosune, can be taken in a wide sense. The whole Christian life, 
justification, that is what God freely does for us by grace through faith on account of Christ, and sanctification, His giving to us the Holy Spirit, the rebirth and renewal and the good fruits, the, the fruit of the Spirit that flows forth. Um, we call that sanctification. So this word dikaiosune, righteousness, can be understood as, as embracing the whole of the Christian reality. It can also be used in a narrow sense. And that narrow sense, excluding good works, even those that are done by the Holy Spirit in and through us, even those works of the new, the new man that is regenerated, um, even those works are excluded when we're considering just like what it is that avails before God. And there it is a righteousness apart from works, a grace apart from works, again, solely on account of Jesus. So let's, with those things in mind, then, let's, uh, let's look at 321 once more. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now the law and the prophets bearing witness to it are the Old Testament here. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So if you see what Paul has done, he's, he's actually shown us two different kinds of righteousness. Okay? There's a righteousness that comes from the law, and there's a righteousness that is apart from the law. And it is that righteousness apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus, that's what God has given us. If apart from the law, then apart from works, you see. Then if apart from works, by grace, through faith, etc. So you see how this all gels together. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Hilasterion is the Greek word there, and that's, that's the word for the covering of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, where the blood of the Lamb was poured. And you hear that language of mercy seat. Well, who sits on that seat? Jesus and Him crucified. And it's His blood that covers the mercy seat. Under the mercy seat are the... Are the, are the um, the tablets, the stone tablets of the law that reveal to us our sin, and those sins then are covered by the blood of Jesus who sits upon the mercy seat as the crucified one enthroned by the cherubim. Okay, that's the picture that Paul is presenting here for us. So we are justified by God's grace as a gift. How so? How can he give this gift? Th namely, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. You know, again, picture His blood on the hilasterion, on the mercy seat. Paul continues, to be received by faith. Okay, well we can go on. But simply put here then, we see that there is a righteousness apart from the law. And that righteousness is freely given to us in Christ Jesus for the sake of His shed blood on the mercy seat of God so that God then declares us to be forgiven, declares us to be righteous on account of that blood. God is then both just because the just penalty of sins has been paid for by Christ 
and he is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is both just and the justifier. You can find lots of theologies where God is just, but not the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And you can find lots of theologies where God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, but he is not just. In Paul's way of speaking, he, God is clearly both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, well, we're going a little further uh, than I had planned there, so pardon that digression. Now, as we, as we look and we consider then just this doctrine, this teaching, back in scarce text, the doctrine or teaching of justification by grace through faith, if this doctrine is the center of Christian theology, then Christology is the foundation upon which justification and all the other articles uh, of faith rest. Okay, And you can see that even in these texts that we've read, that wherever Paul's talking about justification by grace through faith, he's talking about Jesus and Jesus' cross, or in other words, the person and work of Jesus, or in other words, Christology. So you can see that Scare's point is thoroughly biblical, and that's really the main point and why we've, why we've belabored things so long. We want to start with the, with the assumption that um, we need, to be, we need to be humble students of these things and find them in the scriptures and then move forth from there. Now, Scare continues. I'm on the third line from the top. Only that doctrine of justification is Christian, which is based on the Christology revealed in the New Testament and later confessed by the ancient church in its creeds and councils. It contradicts Luther's theology to begin with faith and then argue to the necessity of Christology. An overemphasis on faith in the doctrine of justification may in fact make faith and not Christ the most important component of our salvation. And by extension, if my faith is the most important, or at least more important than Christ, then who is the subject? <laughs> Me! So the Christian becomes more important than Christ. This is a kind of distortion you can see in all kinds of Christianity, where Jesus is just the necessary cog in the theological machinery, but it's really me and God. It's really my faith, me as the Christian. That's why it's very helpful for us every so often to just state very plainly, and I know it in, in, in good Christian, good Lutheran ears, hopefully it, it sounds obvious, but that Christianity is about Christ. It's not about the Christian. You know, it's only about the Christian secondarily on the basis of what Christ does for the Christian. Where too much emphasis is put on faith and not on Christ, or too much emphasis even on grace or justification to the exclusion of Christ, you end up with a distortion, and you end up with a theology that ends up being all about the man as opposed to the God-man. All right, so uh, scarce critique here, um, very good, and probably resonates with you as you consider um, similar 
overemphases that you've encountered. Picking back up with scare, as Luther himself put it, now quoting Luther, he who wants to discuss sin and grace, law and gospel, Christ and man, in a manner befitting a Christian, must for the most part discuss nothing else than God and man in Christ. In other words, to discuss God and man in Christ is then to understand properly these other articles, sin and grace and law and gospel, uh, and even Christ and man, if you will, as being distinct from one another. Now, Scare continues, the orthodox understanding of Christ here by Orthodox, we're going, to make, we're going to be distinct from Eastern Orthodox. We don't mean capital O Orthodox. We mean small O Orthodox. Ortho meaning straight, like when you go to the orthodontist and he straightens out your teeth. And dox being glory, to give the straight glory, to give the right glory. That is, to give glory that is aligned with the teaching of Jesus himself and his apostles. That is Orthodoxy. Orthodoxy gets a terrible name these days. Uh, I mean, all sorts of stupid stuff is said about orthodoxy. I could just do a, I could probably do a 40-minute rant on this alone. First of all, orthodoxy is viewed by most people today as being a bad thing, and and really, and then it's the assumption there is that a, a things such as orthodoxy doesn't exist, and so anyone who claims it is claiming this magical unicorn of authority for themselves. Um, you can clearly see from the scriptures that and. <laughs> and from church history, that the concept of orthodoxy does indeed exist. There is a right glory given, and that is the glory that's aligned with Christ. And then also this orthodoxy, I mean, you, you get these phrases like generous orthodoxy. I, what does that even mean? Orthodoxy is orthodoxy. It's either right or it's wrong. Generous? What is generous supposed to mean? Generously right? Generously wrong? Right that is generous to what's wrong? Christ that is generous to Satan? The Holy Spirit being generous to the unholy spirit? What on earth do we mean when we say generous orthodoxy? Orthodoxy that is generous to heresy? You see, we've, we've come to think about orthodoxy in all manner of wrong and foolish ways, and then we've invented language that simply is wrong and foolish, and we befuddle and confuse people. Um, and, and then those of us who want to be orthodox and who recognize there is such a thing as orthodoxy have to like wade through all this and bear all this shame of people who have invented these nonsense categories and these nonsense ways of speaking. So there is orthodoxy. It's right glorying. It's glorying according to that glory which is revealed in Christ Jesus and his apostles. And that's what we mean here by orthodoxy. So the orthodox understanding of Christ which was prominently set forth by the ancient councils of Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon, provide the normative, under, the normative standard for the, Christ, for the Christology incorporated into the Lutheran confessions. Okay, so what is this thing called Lutheranism, and what is its relationship to church history? Well, we see ourselves in line with church history and particularly on the points of Christology, because that forms the basis of all other theology, including justification and all other articles of the faith. So this is essential if we are going to be orthodox, 
or if we are going to be small c Catholic, which we want to be, because Catholic means kata holas, according to the whole. We want that faith that has been handed down once and for all to the saints and that it has been believed and confessed by the church uh, throughout the ages. Again, we're not going to do theology by democracy or something like this, but what we are going to do is recognize that if a theological teaching has its origin in the 19th century, we can probably, with pretty good cause, reject it without even considering it. It's not kata halos. It's not according to the whole. It's new. It's an innovation in, in a negative sense of the word here. Okay, so a few things that we've just simply glossed over. On the one hand, in that quote by Luther, um, we, we've got this, this last phrase, uh, nothing else than God and man in Christ, which, by the way, is the, like, that is Christology. That phrase right there is Christology. If you confess that Jesus Christ is true God, there's point one, true man, there's point two, in one person, in one Christ, that's point three, you are Nicene, you are Chalcedonian, you are Lutheran, you are uh, Orthodox, you are small c Catholic, I should say small o Orthodox, small c Catholic. Um, that is, honestly, as simple as it gets, and all the other complexities, and as we shall see, Christology can get extremely complex. For all the other complexities, it's almost always these three points that are at stake. Wherever there's a Christological heresy, someone is denying it, or their teaching ends up denying that Jesus is either true God, true man, or one Christ, one person. Okay? So that's, you know, that's as simple as it gets. He's God, he's man, he's one person. That's the person of Christ. Um, now, we recount these councils, and, uh, and I've got the dates written here. Nicaea, 325. Constantinople is 381. Ephesus, 431. Um, and... No, that can't be right. What, do I, what did I do here? Nicaea 325, Constantinople 381, Ephesus 431, Chalcedon 451. Okay, uh, we remember too the Edict of Milan is 313, and so this is, this is when Roman, or, uh, Roman, this is when, that was a slip, this is when Christianity becomes legalized in the Roman Empire by, uh, and by Constantine. You remember this? And so, so now we can hold these big open ecumenical uh, councils, as they're called. And they're called ecumenical because they, they involve these major uh, communities of the faith, of, of theological thinking. And so, so again, this, this places us with our understanding in the 4th and 5th centuries. And basically, the confessions, the Lutheran confessions in the 16th century want to say and do nothing other than the, what these councils say and do. Okay, so just picking back up then right after that sentence where we've introduced uh, the first of the ecumenical councils, uh, Scare writes, the ancient meetings of church leaders were called ecumenical councils because the great centers of Christendom in the Roman Empire were represented at the councils, including Rome, Alexandria, Constantinople, and 
Antioch. So those are the central communities that then, um, you know, this is why it's called ecumenical, they converge for these councils in these places, Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, Chalcedon. The decisions of these early church councils provided the foundation of a faith which is truly called Catholic. Again, notice the small c, and we talked about what that means. Because it is this faith which has provided the doctrinal standard by which the person and work of Christ has been understood by Christians until the 19th and 20th centuries. Right? In other words, teaching of the correct teaching of the scriptures, the correct teaching about the person work of Christ has been established in these councils, continued through Lutheranism, and continued up until the 19th and 20th centuries. What you see particularly uh, in, in really toward the end of the 18th century, as well as then in spades in the 19th and 20th centuries, is you see a, you see a whole-scale disintegration of this you see a disintegration of Christology where the vast majority of prominent theologians in the world today uh, deny one of these three points, that Jesus is true God, true man, or, and, and or one person, right? They're denying one of those major points. Usually, as one might imagine, that he's true God. <laughs> That's the sin du jour. So, continuing about four lines up from the bottom with scare, the 16th century Lutherans did not depart from this Catholic and ecumenical Christology. Again, ecumenical sometimes in our day and age means um, friendly towards churches with other confessions or um, trying to find unity with churches that have differing confessions. That's not how ecumenical is being used here, just FYI. So, 16th century Lutherans didn't depart from this Catholic and ecumenical Christology, namely that of the ecumenical councils, but affirmed it as the correct teaching of the Holy Scriptures. You can see how the Scriptures are still serving as the source and norm by which all other teachings must be uh, judged, and made it the basis for their understanding of justification. So in other words, the person and work of Christ become the basis of our understanding of justification. Where those two things have come unhitched, you've got something else going on. Top of page two. As a testimony to the Lutheran Father's desire to remain faithful to the ancient faith stands the catalog of testimonies, an, appendance to the book, an appendix to the Book of Concord, in which is listed the testimony of the early church fathers in regard to Christology. This proves two points. First, that Christology is truly the most important component of theology and the part of theology that permeates all other parts of theology. That's one, and that the Lutherans recognize this. Two, that they see themselves standing in the line of Orthodox, Catholic, faithful church fathers. And so, if you have a Book of Concord, um, Reader's Edition, I know it's in there, but if you have a Book of Concord, you'll probably find attached to the back in appendix form is this catalog of testimonies, this beautiful list of all these church fathers and all their orthodox statements regarding Christology, and we're as Lutherans effectively saying, yes, this is exactly what we believe, teach, and confess. So what you see here, too, is very different. You know, in, many, in much of Protestantism today, you get this flavor of like, 
Well, sometimes you even get this in Lutheranism. It's a total misunderstanding. Martin Luther started a new church in the 16th century. We're Lutheran. We're, it, goes, it goes from Lutheranism straight back to the apostles. Uh, that's it. I, I mean, that's, that's Protestantism in the worst sense of the word. And you get this sense that people don't, that Protestants as a general category, regardless of whatever specific kind they are, have this same idea of it's just me and the Bible. It's just my church and the Bible. That's a huge problem because that, that in itself is like the definition of what it means to be sectarian. To simply ignore the millions upon millions of Christians that have come before you and or are around you globally today is the definition of sectarianism. So Lutheranism is unique amongst quote-unquote Protestantism in that our method of theology, you, you even see it here, but throughout the entirety of the Book of Concord is, what did Jesus teach? What did his apostles teach? What did the church fathers teach? That's what we teach. So you can see then from the, the, the entire Lutheran argument is an argument of continuity. And that in many ways distinguishes us from the rest of Protestants. So we do have attached this catalog of testimonies, um, picking back up with Scare in the fourth line from the top, where he writes, It is quite fascinating to note that at the time of the Reformation, Lutherans and Roman Catholics accepted each other's formal understanding of Christ's person and work. This agreement on the formal aspects of Christology broke down as far as the Lutherans were concerned because the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification by works was in fact a denial of Christ's atonement. Aha. So to teach a justification of, by works is to deny the atonement. To deny the atonement is to deny the work of Christ. And so now you've entered into what is fundamental. I mean, again, you don't get anything more fundamental in Christian theology than the person and work of Jesus. Where the person of Jesus is attacked, you no longer have Christianity because Christ, the person of Christ, is being changed. So you no longer have Christianity. Or where the work of Christ is being changed, you no longer have Christianity. The personal work of Christ are so essential that is to change those aspects is to change your faith. It's to change from Christianity into something else. Now, again, this is, this is so important for us to realize because there are quite a few Lutherans running around in our own day and age who deny the atonement. And other, and I mean, that is to deny the work of Christ. And there are many other Lutherans and other Christians who think, oh, it's just a small error, it's just nothing. How can that be a small error? How can that be nothing? To deny the, the work of Christ is to have a fundamental disagreement in who Christ is and what he does. You can't have a bigger theological disagreement. It strikes right at the heart of Christianity defined by Christ, defined by Christ's deeds. So this idea of, oh, this is just a, a mistake that we can overlook, is unthinkable. And there's simply no other way to put it.
it, what it really shows is a, is a complete and total lack of the understanding of how theology actually functions. It shows a very piecemeal view of theology where one can a la carte pick and choose what he or she likes or doesn't like or agrees with or doesn't agree with and find no need for any coherence in an actual person, namely the person of Jesus. So I simply point that out, again by way of digression, because when you're dealing with the personal work of Christ, you can't deal with anything more foundational. And to derivate there is to derivate in, in other articles. It is to break fellowship. There is only orthodoxy and heterodoxy. Okay? There is only right or straight giving of glory. And then heterodoxy, heterodoxy just simply means to give a, another or different. Right? Like a heterosexual is a man who likes what is different, thus a woman, or a woman who likes what is different, thus a man. Heterodoxy is a different glory. A different glory than what? Than orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is here's who Jesus is and this is what he's done according to the scriptures and apostles. Heterodoxy says, no. So heterodoxy isn't also, I mean, and that's really what heresy is. Heresy also means choice. Well, choice of what? Choice, any choice other than the one right choice. So we've, we've gotten so sensitive. I mean, while we let all these abominations take place, heaven forbid anyone ever use the language of heterodoxy or heresy. Well, let's just take the teeth out of these words. If it's not orthodoxy, it's heterodoxy. If it's not orthodoxy, it's heresy. That's simply what it is. Uh, and, and you can find this right from the scriptures, if you like. Uh, at least certainly that's the case with uh, heresy, um, and then by extension with heterodoxy, because it's simply definitional. Okay, so there is only one orthodoxy, and that is to get the personal work of Christ right. That's foundational. Now, Scare continues his thought along the lines of the Roman Catholic Church uh, of the 16th century, and then the breach that is found, because in denying um, salvation by grace alone, that's, that's, you can't do that without denying the atonement. And if you're denying the atonement, you're denying Christ. So, Scare continues, the Church of Rome did not permit its Christology, on which there was basic agreement with the Lutherans, to inform its doctrine of justification. But the point still remains that in spite of divisive disagreements in many other areas, the majority of Christian bodies have understood the person and work of Christ in terms set forth in the early church councils and creeds. Okay, so, you know, despite these kinds of uh, disagreements and um, if obviously you're teaching salvation by works, you, you don't understand the atonement and those kinds of, like, implications or deductions or movements we can make in terms of our theology. It is, nonetheless, a refreshing point that, as Scare says, the majority of Christian bodies have understood the personal work of Christ in terms set forth in early church councils and creeds. In other words, if you think of global Christianity and if you think of historic Christianity, the vast majority have believed that Jesus is God, true God, man, true man, one person, and that he laid down his life for the sins of the world, that his blood cleanses us from all our sins. Okay. That, I mean, 
again, that's, that's just fundamental Christianity, and the majority of Christian bodies have understood this. So that is, uh, I mean, that, that's comforting in the sense of um, it being truly, uh, first and foremost, historically ecumenical and then Catholic. Okay, I see that we're out of time. So let's simply pick up here next week with, and, and we're going to move a lot faster as we move forward. Um, that's, that's some heavy lifting because we just want to simply lay things out as they're laid out in the scriptures and in the early church. And then we're, we're going to begin uh, moving into the later period of the early church and into then uh, modern times, which this will, if you haven't read this, this will depress you. Um, <laughs> Oh well, be depressed. Then, you're, then you'll see how important Christology is. So if you would like, why not for next week, let's plan to have read through the first chapter. That simply takes us through page 9. And our goal will be to, uh, to zip along and get through all of that. The Lord be with you.